I had done that, you know, a number of weeks on faith, and I love doing that. And, and even if you guys don't like it, I like it, so it doesn't matter. Um, but I, I was thinking about, in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, you know, faith, hope, and love. And that the greatest of these is love. And so I began to realize also, the Apostle Paul talks in Galatians, and he says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Like, all the other things that maybe you've thought about and said, okay, what really matters, what really counts out of my life? Well, Paul says the only thing that counts, no other religious activity, no other, you know, uh, charitable work or whatever it is, the only thing that counts, the only thing that matters in the kingdom of God or the, the, the way that God values things is when you're living in faith that is then expressed by love. I don't know if, you know, I don't know how long you've been around the church or around theology or religion or whatever it is, but there are not a lot of loving people in the church. Many of us could probably attest, particularly if any of your pastor kids or your missionary kids or any of that, you could probably attest to how painful it was to watch your parents or watch your family go through church. My own son, to this day, struggles to go through a church because he's seen what's happened to me uh, and what's happened to my, my family. Uh, the lies that people have told, the betrayals, the, the attacks, the criticalness, the critical nature of people. It's amazing that the most important thing in all the New Testament is how you deal with people out of love, and yet there's so little evidence of it. And this is, this is true all over America. I mean, it's true where, you know, we don't live in a place where people are nice. Okay, I like it better here. Please. I mean, I like it that when you're mad at me, you tell me. I like it that, you know, I like it when people are genuine, even if they're genuinely jerks. It's okay with me. As long as it's genuine. What I can't stand is where I grew up and everybody was nice, but then they talk behind your back. <laughs> and so it's funny, we'd have these church gatherings, you know, we'd be sitting here and we'd be having all this deep spiritual talk and everybody's got a mask on and everybody's got a face on and everything like that. And they go in the parking lot and you get the real picture. Yeah, that's not love. That's fake. It's not genuine. It's phony. And, and um, so as I thought about that, I was like, let's go after this idea. Let's go after it biblically. Let's Let's look at what the Bible has to say about love, and then let's, let's dive in and let God love on us and also let love begin to be expressed from us in a deeper way than ever before. Are you willing to do that with me? I mean, I, I think I want to take about six weeks at this, and we're going to look right at 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to talk about 1 Corinthians 13 together, and, and we're going to take some time with it. This morning, we're really only going to look at verses 1 through 3, and then we're going we're gonna to go after this together. But would you, would you do this with me? Can you com- would you commit with me that we're going to pray right now that the Lord would show us his love? Would you, can we do that? Lord, we, we want to see love. We want to experience it. We want to feel it. We want it to invade us. We want it to pervade our lives. We want it to overcome us and overwhelm us. Lord, honestly, we don't know how to love. 
We know how to be affectionate. We know how to be nice. Sometimes we're able to sacrifice, but we're not that loving. And I, I'm going to confess this on behalf of our church, that, Lord, we still don't know fully what love is, and we want to know. We, we've tasted, and we want to know more. And, uh, Lord, I know it's possible to offend people by saying this, but I just know there's a level of love that we have not yet experienced and a longing for us to do so. So as pastor, as leader, as person responsible, I stand before you and confess, Lord, that we don't want anything less than the genuine. We want something so real, so powerful, that the whole world will know that we are loved and that we are in love. And that would permeate into our marriages, our friendships, our parenting, our relationships with our parents and our relationship with our community. But we don't want a thimble full. We want a river. We don't want just a little shot of love. We want a flow of love that comes from the throne. I ask for this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I, when, I, when I pray like that, I'm not praying to offend you, but what happens is I start to see certain things in the Spirit, and I see the Lord saying, and please listen to me this. I see the Lord saying that we get very content with where we are. And our tendency is to think everybody else needs this, not me. But I believe the Lord is directing us here because He has a whole new level of love for you. A new level of love for you to experience, a new level of love for you to give away, a new level of love for you to explain. And I don't think this is mere information over these days. I think this is about transformation. And the, the, the amount of love that I've experienced with the Lord just makes me want more. It's the sort of thing where you're eating something and you get satisfied, but you're thinking, I, I, I'm going to eat this again because this is so good. Or you're like, I want to stay hungry because this is so good. And the idea is that he wants to increase your capacity for his love and then for it to pour out into uh, the lives of your family, the lives of your friends, even at work, wherever you are. Here, here's the goal. The goal is that you go up to somebody who's known you for a long time and you say to them, would you characterize me as a loving person? And then immediately they would say, yes, you're one of the most loving people I've ever met. Now what you don't want is a hesitation. Well, I wouldn't exactly call you loving. I mean, you're nice when you, you know, when you are nice. But you want, do you understand what I'm saying? You want to be able to go to the people and with, who aren't afraid of reprisal, who aren't afraid of you getting back at them, and say to them, am I a loving, do you consider me a loving person? And have them honestly say to you, yes. That's the goal. Or to even, what, what I've seen is, at times, I remember this one woman 
who came here for quite a while, and she was in a very abusive relationship, and would literally show up on a Sunday morning with bruises where she had been beaten. And we would see it, and we we would we would minister to her. And I remember one of the women that ministered to her, this w- woman who was abused, looked at her and said, "What you have, I want." You see, she didn't know the lady's theology. She didn't know if she was a Calvinist or an Arminian. She didn't know if she was Pentecostal or Evangelical. She didn't know, she didn't know, you know, all, all the different things about whether she homeschooled or didn't, or all the what her political affiliation was. She didn't know any of those things. All she knew was there was something of the love of this woman that she wanted and she was desperate for. And even when she was broken and beaten up, she would come to church just so she could find it. That's what we're looking for in your life. And you say, well, you know, I'm not a very nice person. Jesus starts with very broken people. And you might say, you know, I'm not very spiritual. Let me tell you something. All that means, it doesn't mean that you don't need this. All it means is you haven't been loved yet. People come to me all the time. They say, oh, my spiritual life is so dry. And I go, you know why? Because you're not experiencing the love of God. There is never a dryness when you're in love. There's never a dryness when love is overtaking you and overcoming you. I mean, when I first fell in love with my wife, I had to drive 10 hours from Jackson, Mississippi to Bowling Green, Kentucky just to be with her. But I was so madly in love with her, I didn't even notice that it was 10 hours. I even had it figured out. I had 8 o'clock Greek class. Greek class at 8 o'clock is not the most exciting thing in the world. But I had an 8 o'clock, you know, third-year Greek class, and I had to be back in Jackson, Mississippi on 8 a.m., so I would stay till the last minute with her in Bowling Green and then get in the car and make it back for Greek class and then go to sleep. Or in Greek class, I'll go to sleep. (laughs) Whichever one it was. But I didn't think of it as a sacrifice. I didn't go, oh, this is such a dry trip. I mean, this is 34 years ago, and I can still remember it like it's today because it was the first time I was ever in love and someone was in love with me. And I, 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 those hours went like nothing. You're never dry when you're in love. You're only dry when the love is lost. You're only dry when it's no more, no, no longer about love. It's about something else. Now, one of the, does this make sense to you so far? Now, one of the issues that as I studied this and I was thinking how to present it to you, I loved this uh, quote from Tim Keller. He said, he uses 1 Corinthians 13, he uses it to talk about how do you live the Christian life? And the way that he phrased it is this. He says, how do I live a life that is free from the ruinous power of sin? I love that statement. Say it with me. How do I live a life that is free from the ruinous power of sin? Now, all week I want you to say that out loud, okay? How do I live a life free from the ruinous power of sin? Because that's, that's, that's the issue here. And the answer is always the same. You can only live a life that's free from the power of sin, which is there to destroy you. You can only live that life if you're in love. 
You cannot and will not do it because you're afraid of consequences. You will not do it because you're afraid of the penalties. You will only live a life that's free if you're in love. And then that life begins to manifest in other ways in the way that you live. And, and this is a very simple, simple little thing, but it's helpful. Anywhere that you are not yielded to the Lord, anywhere that you're having trouble with obedience, anywhere that you are disobedient, it is not an issue of willpower. It's an issue of love. See, some people go, oh God, I want more willpower. See, it's not an issue of willpower. And truthfully, the God who is holy is never going to give you willpower over your sin. He's not going to do it because it doesn't work that way. It's not going to work that way. And all you would be is restraining from that sin. You would not be free from it. You're only free from something when you don't want it anymore. You're only free from something when it's no longer your default setting. You're only free from something when it's, when it's no longer the option that you take. Like somebody says to me, you know, I just need more willpower to restrain my anger. Well, you're not free if you're restraining it. You're still under it if you're restraining it. Well, I just, I don't want to be so fearful all the time. Well, you, the truth is that if you have willpower, and go, oh, I'm not going to be afraid, I'm not going to be afraid, you're just going to make fear bigger. The only way that fear and anger and lust and these things, the only way that they really, you get freedom from them is when you don't want them anymore. When you recognize this, this isn't doing it for me. In some ways, life in the Holy Spirit is just a recognition that all other kinds of life don't work. Any other kind of life does not work. So you choose to live in the Spirit. And you choose to live there because there's life there. So we'll read this passage together. I don't have my TV there, so I have to turn on you a little bit, okay? So would you read it out loud with me? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. That's a lot of nothing there, right? See it? Well, how many of you have heard this at a wedding ceremony? Yeah, okay. At a special occasion, maybe even at a death. Have you ever? They've, sometimes they've read it at funerals. And, and so everybody, when they hear this, they go, oh, isn't that nice? But do you realize they're really not listening? This isn't nice, right? I mean, you just said, if you don't have love, you are. <laughs> and, and we read it like, ooh, wow, that's so deep. It's so wonderful. Isn't that romantic? Man, people are so easily stupid. <laughs> I mean, I understand why you read at the wedding ceremony, but not a single person is ready for what this chapter is going to tell them when they get married. They're thinking, She's going to do this for me. You're going to be patient. You're going to be kind. I'm still going to be me. <laughs> oh, anyway, 
as we look at this, I'm gonna, I, I want to take you through this in three, kind of three parts. On one part, I think you have to look at the backstory of this chapter because it is a very famous chapter, but you have to understand there are 12 chapters that went before this. This isn't like a standalone chapter. There's 12 chapters that went before this, and then there's, you know, there's three, four more after, uh, three more after it. So, so you've got quite a bit around this chapter, so there's a big backstory behind it. And then the other part is, again, I really like how Keller frames, Tim Keller from the city frames this. He says, there's a bombshell in this. And I like that wording because we're so used to this chapter that we just tune out and say, oh, this sounds nice. Instead of recognizing this is, this is a bombshell. And then it really is geared. If you notice in this first three verses, there are three different people groups talked about here. Each time that he speaks, he speaks about three different people groups, and we want to look at what those three people groups are. So let's think about the backstory. There's a couple of things that, that are very interesting in parallels to our situation with Corinth. Now, Corinth was a, a, a basically a four-mile isthmus. Now, an isthmus is a, a small piece of land that, that connects two large pieces of land. So Corinth was right in the middle of, of the, this, the area of Greece. So there was the northern part of Greece, uh, which was a large land mass, and then there was the southern part, and there was this isthmus. It was only four miles wide, and it connected the north and the south. And so for years and years, Corinth had been one of the, the major trade ports, one of the major commerce centers in the whole world. And the Romans, they were... the the. The town itself was so debauched. It was such a, a, a horrible, awful place, a lot of rebellion, all kinds of immorality, all this stuff, that in 146 B.C., about 146 years or so before Christ, the Romans utterly obliterated Corinth. They destroyed it, they burned it down, and they chased out all the inhabitants of it, and they just made it a desolation. So for over 100 years, no one at all lived in Corinth. This is, this is pretty interesting as you look at this for a hundred years. So 46, around 46 B.C., 40-something B.C., Julius Caesar said, why aren't we using Corinth? Because there's a couple of things that, that, that are key for Corinth. Corinth was a little bit like the Panama Canal of its day because the ships and the, the goods could come into the isthmus and they'd only have to travel four miles and then they could be loaded on ships, and then they could go the rest of the way over to Rome and to other places. And so they began to say, this is a perfect place for commerce, for trade, for all this kind of stuff. And so people began to move into Corinth so that Corinth, by the time Paul writes, so this is somewhere in the 50s or early 60s AD, somewhere in there, by the time Paul writes, Corinth is now one of the largest cities in the world. In the matter of like 40 years, it went from desolation to being one of the mega cities of the ancient world. And the reason was you could make it there. You could, there, were, there was no class structure. There was no tradition. There was no you know, noble families. Anybody could go to Corinth and they could become successful. I think they had a song sung by an ancient Frank Sinatra. <laughs> if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. 
That's the idea. It is almost a parallel to New York City. People didn't go to Corinth to live. They went there to make it there. They went there to become a success. Nobody lived there. They didn't want to stay there. They wanted to get successful. They wanted to be somebody. And so it was a city that was utterly about trade and completely about sex. Doesn't sound anything like New York City. But, uh, but they, were, they were sex obsessed. If you look, as Paul writes to the letter of the Corinthians, he writes, uh, in, particularly in chapter 6, he says, you guys, were, you guys were temple prostitutes, you were homosexuals, you were, uh, you were gangsters, you were uh, you know, extortioners, you were all of these things. All of the people that are drawn into the church in Corinth all come from this immoral, greedy, you know, uh, shady, sketchy kind of background. And so it's, a, it's kind of a fascinating uh, church of people. They're not, you know, they're not your traditional church people. They're people that were one from the streets and one from the world. And so Paul writes to them. He writes about them. Now, there's a couple other things that are sort of important. Um, when Paul comes to Corinth, personally, when he gets to Corinth, he's broken. He's beaten up. He's been physically attacked. He's been, he's been uh, uh, psychologically, uh, argumentatively, all kind of ways. He's, 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 not, he's not full. He's not whole. And, and it's actually in, in uh, Acts 18, when Paul gets to Corinth, God appears to him, and he speaks to him, because Paul's, Paul's at burnout level. He's at the place where he doesn't know if he can go on. He had been in Athens, and he didn't do well in Athens, if you look at it pretty closely. And he gets to Corinth, and he's like, is it going to happen again? Is it going to be like this again? And the Lord meets him, and the Lord says, look, don't be afraid. That's the first thing he says. You ever want to know what God's will is for your life? Just look at the scriptures. It always says, the first thing he says to you is do not be afraid. 366 times in the Bible, some form of do not be afraid is there. People come up to me all the time. What's the will of God? I just go, don't be afraid. Oh, yeah, that's easy for you to say, they'll say. See, but that's what God always says. And the reason he says that is because no matter what situation or circumstance you're in, he has a plan. He has a solution. He has a strategy. But see, when you're afraid, you can only hear your strategy. You can only work your solutions. And they got you into the place you're in. So when you're not afraid, and, you know, and you're listening, then you can get his strategies. And so the Lord says, I'm, says to Paul in Acts 18, I'm going to do a work here, and you're going to see that I can do anything. Because Paul's looking around, he's like, there aren't, even, there aren't even good Jews here. There's just really bad people everywhere. I mean, think about it. The people he's went into the Lord, they, they get their religious life is to have sex. The people he's leading to the Lord are basically the godfather and his whole family. These, these, are, you know, these are people that are scary, many of them, to be around, much less 
if you're, if you're like me and you understand something of supernatural and spiritual warfare, when you're around people, you feel their demons. And so he would be in the midst of a demonic stronghold. His depression or feeling of oppression, whatever it was, was, was real because he was experiencing the atmosphere spiritually that was around him. And God spoke to him and said, don't be afraid. I'm going to show you what I can do. Now, this is important that you kind of begin to understand this, that wherever you are in your life, whatever's going on in your life, the first thing God will always say to you is what? Come on. It's a simple, it's a simple lesson. If you don't get this one, you won't hear him say anything else. What is it? Okay. Go and do likewise. You know, do this. Because you won't hear the next word if you haven't heard that word. And you will never have capacity for love if you give place to fear. If fear has priority, love will not. It's a choice that you make. And so Paul had to make a choice that he would love the unlovable that he would believe God even though his eyes said, this is the worst place you ever sent me. He had to first deal with his own fear before he could hear. And it's important that we get this. So as he gets this word from the Lord, he, he begins to deal with these people and he raises up a church. Now, here's the thing about this church. This church in Corinth, now you, you got to listen carefully to this, Okay. This church in Corinth, I've already told you all the bad background about them, but there was never a more gifted church in in history than the church of Corinth. Now, they were as messed up as could be, but they had all the spiritual gifts in full operation. There was prophetic, there were miracles, there were dreams, there was healing, there was vision, There was every kind of work of the Holy Spirit. They were open to it all. They were moving in it all. And they were the biggest mess there ever was. Now, here's what happens in USA, okay? Is you see that and you go, well, let's just get rid of the miraculous. Let's just get rid of the prophetic. Let's just get rid of the tongues. Let's just get rid of all that. And guess what happens when you have that? You don't have a messed up church. You have a powerless church. You have a, yeah, you have a funeral parlor church. Everything goes according to plan. But see, if you want to have the miraculous, if you want to have the prophetic, if you want people to begin to move in the, in the spirit, they're going to move in messiness. This is the nature of revival. I mean, I, I cannot tell you, and, and I know it's hard for a lot of times for people to realize But the people God loves in our community are not people you love. The people that God loves in our community, they are the most messed up jerks you ever met. And without Jesus, they don't have hope. Without Jesus, they don't have a chance. They are people you would never associate with. They are people that you would never want to be friends with. And yet God says, that's the ones I love. That's the ones I set my heart on. And so what has happened over the years, and again, this is my opinion, not necessarily the word of God here, but just my opinion on it, is that we've so defined how nice church is supposed to be and how nice the meetings are supposed to be and how nice the people are supposed to be 
that we've actually said, Holy Spirit, you're not welcome here because you're too messy. You're too messy. And Paul didn't say he didn't want the Holy Spirit. He just spoke to him and said, look, when the Holy Spirit comes, there are some rules. He just tried to make the Pentecostals a little more Presbyterian. That's all he was doing. Okay? He wasn't trying to make them less Pentecostal. He was just trying to give them a little order, a little decency. Because they were, they, were, they were so excited with their gifts, and they were so filled with their gifts, and they were such a mess personally. So he gives them a little structure here. And he does that in chapter 12. He says, look, when the gifts are present, here's what this is, and here's what that is. And he gives them in chapter 14. He says, you know, everybody ha- can have a tongue. Everybody can have an instruction. Everybody can have an interpretation, but do it in some order. Don't have more than three of you speak. Don't have speak all at once. He didn't say don't speak. He didn't say don't prophesy. He didn't say don't speak in tongues. He just says bring some order to it so it's not chaos. He didn't want to lose. You've got to understand. He had a bit of a problem here because he didn't want to lose the joy of the Spirit. He didn't want to lose the power of the Spirit. But at the same time, he had a messy bunch of people. And so it becomes important. Like maybe, maybe you know, for a lot of my ministry life, I, you know, I taught or preached at very traditional churches, grew up Presbyterian, you know, and the people, the people would come in and they, would, they wanted a nice sermon and they wanted a few hymns and they wanted something familiar and all like that. And then they, they kind of punched in and then they punched out and they, they left and they said, oh, isn't it, you know, it's nice. And, and where I grew up, all the Presbyterians were lawyers and doctors and they owned the town and they, 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 were, they were well-to-do people. So they all dressed up very nicely and all of these things. And everybody thought that was church. That would be all order, all decency, all, you know, everything very, very, very structured. I remember this one guy who was the pastor's son. He was my best friend growing up. He led a high school student to the Lord. And this high school student had been one of those idiots that got up on a bridge and jumped into a river just because he could. And the, instead, it was very shallow, and so he became a, like a paraplegic or quadriplegic or whatever. And so my friend began to minister to him, and as he ministered to him, he get, he, the guy gave his life to Christ. So my friend brought him to church. In those days, there was no handicap access type thing, so he put him right in the front, right in the front uh, pew. He called him pew, and they smelled. And uh, uh, pulled him right up there, and so... The, the first time that he was up there, people began to comment and say, why is that guy in our church? What is he doing in our church? And then they said, he's in the Turner family traditional pew and he's blocking them. I'm like, you know, that's kind of missing the point here. We have so much order and so much niceness that we have no messiness, but we have no life. Now, it's nice that you guys don't interrupt me and you don't throw things at me. You know, you, you tend to sit quietly somewhat and uh, listen and, and all like that. That's, that's nice. That's not what I'm talking about, but I'm saying, what I'm saying is, in the midst of this, your life is a mess. You don't need to hide it. In the midst of this, if your family's not going well, don't fake it. In the midst of this, if you're having money problems, don't come into church and play like you're okay when you're not okay. 
Don't come in and act like your marriage is good when it sucks. That's not what this is. You see, we should be more like Corinth in that, you know, all our junk is out. I'm not okay, you're not okay, but it's okay. You know, the only thing is we, we don't think it's okay for you to stay that way. And Paul, see, Paul, what, what changed Paul's life, what changed his ministry was Corinth. Because he began to say, if God can do it here, he can do it anywhere. See, I, it's so funny. I mean, I hope I'm making some sense to you this morning. Okay, let me just tell you, let me tell you a little, little story from 10 years ago. So I walk in here, candidate to be the pastor, and, um, and uh, the people accept me. I don't know why they did, but they did. And I became the pastor. And then my first sermon, I'm up, and I tell, I tell my own attempt at suicide. And how God met me, I heard his voice. He said, I love you. And it changed my life. And, and people came up to me, numerous people, and said, you know, we never heard a pastor ever admit any weakness before. This was pretty amazing to us. And then other people came up to me and said, they go, you sure have a sweet southern accent. But here's what, that was the first sentence. Second sentence was, you won't last long here. This is too tough for you. You're too sweet. I'm like, you don't know me. I may sound sweet. I ain't sweet. Uh, <laughs> there's agreement in the room. But are you hearing what I'm saying? So they came up to me and said, they said, it won't work here. That's what they're saying. I'm saying to you, what Paul found at Corinth is that the love of God worked in the worst place. And he, from then on, he said, the love of God will work anywhere. Part of why, and, and some of you are visiting and, and you're not, maybe you're not, you haven't joined into our movement yet. But here's what I've said since I got here. If God and his love and his grace and his presence will work in Rockland County, we can reach anywhere in this area. And he's proven that over 10 years. More and more people coming to Jesus, more and more ethnicities, more and more racial groups, more and more families coming to Christ, more and more churches, not just ours, getting revived, getting revitalized. Things are happening. See, what Paul understood, and and what's the backstory between 1 Corinthians 13, is Paul is saying there is something that can change everything, and it's the love of God. Now, here's the bombshell. Can you switch it for me, Ron? some reason, this thing's not working. Oh, there we go. Now it's working. Okay, so, and again, this is Tim Keller's word, the bombshell. In verses 1 through 3, he said, Paul says, you can have every spiritual gift, you can even have the miraculous gifts, and yet, you can see all of that exhibited, and yet you could be spiritually nothing. So this is a, this is a message to church people. It's not a message to the outside world. It's a message to people who are comfortable, who, are sa- who feel like they're safe in the fact that they have manifestations or they have 
gifts that are at work. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 7. He says, many of you will come to me on that last day and you will say to me, Lord, Lord, you know, did I not preach in your name? Did I not prophesy in your name? Did I not do miracles in your name? And I will say to them, Jesus says, depart from me because I never knew you. That's what Paul is talking about here. I have met so many people who have theological orthodoxy, but no love. I have met people who have seen miraculous gifts, but have no love. And what Paul is saying, if your faith is not being expressed by your love, if you're not filled with love for your wife, you're in danger. If you're not filled with love, and you say to me, you don't know how much people have hurt me. Well, I do. And I know how much they hurt the Lord Jesus. I know what the gospel is. The gospel is that the one innocent man who ever lived, the very God-man, the, the Son of God Himself, who had done no wrong, was treated like an ordinary criminal, like worthy of capital punishment by those around Him. They lied about Him. They beat Him. If you've ever seen the Passion of Christ, you could see what pain is. I know that He knows what it is to be hurt, what it is to be betrayed by your own disciples, people you spent three years with, people you gave everything you had to. To have even your own mother not understand what's going on when you're going through your ministry. To know what it is to be rejected by entire towns. To be rejected by your entire tribe, your family, everybody. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you get it and you get what he went through to love you, what he went through to get rid of the sin issues in your life, to get rid of the guilt, to get rid of the shame, and then someone else does something to you, it seems rather trivial in comparison. Many of you live your lives unforgiving, and you say you're a believer. I'm a believer in Jesus. Do you understand? The heart of a believer is an absence of bitterness. If you're not able to forgive, then you have not yet experienced forgiveness. That's what Paul is saying. I don't mean to be mean this morning, but it is a bombshell. He's saying if you're not living in love, if you're living in grudges, you may not even be a believer. You might be a church goer, but you're not on your way to heaven. You know, and you might say, this isn't very loving of you to say this to us. If somebody's about to die and you could keep them from dying, isn't it loving to say to them that would probably not be a good decision? You not in my studies as well as my experience, 85 to 90% of church members have strong issues of unforgiveness. I would even call it strong to the point of a bondage of unforgiveness. 85 to 90%. Not just in our country, but others. I was in Colombia. I was in, this was one of my first trips where God began to do miraculous things in my life. And I was preaching, and suddenly I, I could preach in Spanish, I could understand in Spanish, and I'm preaching unforgiveness. And this, this whole congregation just gets up and starts going to each other forgiving each other 
hundreds of people just getting up, going with tears in their eyes, running to their family, to their friends, and saying, will you forgive me? I did wrong by you. And all this has happened. And the pastor's standing up there like this. And six of the members come up to him, and he goes, no, don't. Don't, don't come up here. Don't come up here. And I heard him in a meeting. I heard him in a meeting. This is the pastor. He goes if, if, to his staff, and he says, if any of you screw up, if any of you mess up, if you make mistakes, the Lord will forgive you, but I won't. It's not just, it's not just people in the chairs. You know, it's, people, it's leaders. Somehow we've not gotten this bombshell that if you are doing all kinds of things for God, but you don't have love, all those things you're doing, they are nothing. But if you have love and you're doing what you're doing out of love, you are walking in the very faith that leads to success, that leads to abundance, that leads to all these things. Now, I, I just want to hit at these three people. I'll try to do this quickly. So the, Paul basically talks to three groups of people. The very first group of people, is, is he's really talking to those who are gifted. It's those who can prophesy, those who can do miracles, those who can speak. And one of the things that you begin to realize is that the spiritual gifts in your life do not boot off or they do not root themselves in your character. It is a very interesting thing that the spiritual gifts, that the gifting of the Spirit, doing even supernatural things does not come from character. And what happens is a lot of times people can move into their gifting or that which God has gifted them with, and they can move into that and they can make the mistake because they can do that, they must be okay. We were, we were you know, trying to do some prayer stuff in Atlanta and, and um, we were working with this one little independent church and we were having some relationships with them and, and they sent home with one of, my, one of my people, they sent home a tape of the pastor's teaching. And this is going to freak you out a little bit, okay? And this is kind of adult, so I, uh, I hope it'll be all right. But I want you to understand how serious this is. So we're, the family's watching the pastor's teaching, and then when the pastor's teaching is over, this pornographic thing comes on. It was the old days of video cassettes. This pornographic thing comes on. And so the people from the church ask these people that I know, and they go, they go uh, well, what did you think of the second part? And they're like, well, it was, it was horrible. It was awful. That's sin. It's immoral. Oh, okay, okay. And come to find out they were using that to fish to see if they could get people involved in sexual activities. So they would do the, they would do the, the and, and, and when they were confronted, and we confronted them on it, they said, well, we speak in tongues, so we think we're fine. God hasn't, you know, God hasn't taken away the gifts, so it must be okay that we're sexually immoral. We just think that, that this is love expressed and had this whole thing. And I'm sitting there going, are you kidding me? And yet I've seen it over and over again where people experience miracles and they experience the supernatural, and instead of recognizing that God is so good, he will let you see what he can do. But what he's going after is not your power or his power, but he's going after is that you would, you would experience his love, that you would give him your heart. Um, does that make sense? I haven't explained it that way before. Are you catching my drift on this? 
See, now my, there are some of you that probably you can speak, you can teach, you can do those things, and it doesn't matter if your heart's right. But what matters is not what you can do, but that your heart is right. And then when those two are together and your gifts and your heart are together, then God can do anything with you. One of the things that, that's really interesting is, is that in so many ways, the gifts are very limited, but grace is unlimited. And there's some very real sense in which if you begin to flow in the grace of God and you begin to live out of the love of God, you'll have a ministry like you never had before. Because in many ways, even if you're not that great of speaker, but you're a great lover, people will follow you. Because they'll know your heart. They'll know your life. They'll want what you have. And so a lot of times what happens is, is Paul says there that when you live your life just to get the attention of other people and say, look, see, see how valuable I am, see how much worth I have, and you live this kind of peevish, demanding sort of life, then Paul says you're nothing more than a clanging sim- uh, gong or a clanging cymbal. A sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And the picture there is a pagan temple. See, when you went into a pagan temple, you didn't pray with your voice. You prayed by beating something. The louder the noise, the more you were trying to wake your God up. And he says, when you become this person who's not living out of a life of love, then you're nothing more than a pagan worshiper. You're trying to get attention. You're trying to get value. You're trying to get respect. You're trying to get love, but you're doing it in all the wrong ways. So I I use this one other. You know, I I think this is important because some of you are very gifted. And I think you can hide in your gifting and go, okay, I'm okay, I'm okay because I can do this or I can do that. I have value, I have worth. Uh, I've been using this illustration some because it, 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 it's important to understand this. When the trainers of lions and tigers train them, they understand this simple principle that there's a pecking order. And so let's say you have 10 lions and tigers and you have the number one lion, number two, all the way to number 10. What happens when they do this is the first nine of those lions, you ever watch a circus, the first nine will get up on their stools and their pedestals, but they do no tricks. The only lion or the only tiger that will ever do tricks is the number 10 one in the pecking order. And what he's trying to do, they've figured out, is what he's trying to do is get the respect of the other nine. He wants to move up. But as long as he's jumping through the hoops, as long as he's jumping through fire, as long as he's doing all the lion tamer's tricks, they're just looking at him going, you'll never be number one. You'll always be number 10. Look what we make you do. Can you hear me on this? So a lot of us, what happens is we're number 10, so we want to have more gifts than everybody else. We want more attention than everybody else. We have more demands than everybody else, and everybody else is sitting there going, you're not going to ever get up on this stool. You can keep jumping through your hoops. See, The only way that you get to have the satisfaction and fulfillment that you were made for is when your heart is aligned to the love of God. And you begin to say, this is who I am. I am a child of God. I am a son. My gifts are, are a part of what I do, but they're not essential to who I am. 
mean, I, I would miss it if I didn't get to teach or preach. I would miss it, but it wouldn't change who I am. It wouldn't change my value. It wouldn't change my relationship. It wouldn't change my sense of confidence or worth because it's not in my gifts. The gifts could go away and I would still be the same son of God. I would still be the same child of the Most High God. And nothing about that would change. And until you get to that place, you will not be fully confident in your own skin and you'll be jumping through hoops. And then you'll be angry because nobody gives you the respect you think you deserve. But the fact is, sometimes they're just laughing at you because they're like, they're number one, you're still number 10. Does that that get home at all? All right, some of the 10s listen to that. All right, so the other two groups. The second group, and this might be you, is that Paul says there's a group of people who say, I'm not spiritual. And so this group is, is, is a group that in many ways see themselves as spiritual nothings. And so what Paul says about this, and I, I mentioned it a little bit, is really and truly gifts are always limited, but grace is unlimited. So some of the quotes I like about this is really, in my life, your life, it's not about giftedness, but grace. It's not our accomplishments, but Christ on our behalf. And then if you're godly and loving, everyone will follow you. And then I think Paul is saying this, that the greatest miracle of all is love. Love is a miracle beyond all other miracles. That when you live in a loving way, you don't ever have to heal the sick in a, way, in a way. You never have to prophesy because even though you can, I'm not saying, but when you live in love, you are living in miracle. When there's love in your marriage, when there's love in your family, when there's love with your friendships, that is in and of itself is a miracle. And then the last group, Paul says there's a group of people that don't even understand the gospel. So what he says about them, he says, these are people who give away all they have. They deliver up their body to be burned, all of these things. And he says, when you are religious and you are trying to live out your life by being a human doing for God or or to God or whatever it is, Paul says, you have gained nothing. I mean, I don't know how much, you know, how much more is there than nothing. I mean, that's about as extreme as you can get. He says, and, and some of you spend your whole life doing what a church told you to do or you did what a religion told you to do. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians thirteen three, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that by doing all those things, you have gained nothing. And at some point, you've got to go, you know what? It didn't satisfy me. It didn't fulfill me. It didn't change me. It didn't do for my family what I was looking for. I need the real thing. And Paul says that real thing is love. Um, I'll just finish with this part. And, and this is important for those of us who have experienced God's power. God's essence is not his power. God's essence is his love. It doesn't say in the scripture when it describes God, it doesn't say God has love or that God gives love. It actually says God is love. So the essence of God is not how powerful he is, though he's all-powerful. The essence of God is not how wise he is, although he's all-wise. It's not even his ability to be everywhere present at the same time. It is his essence that is love. And so when you come into relationship with God and you stay in this fearful place or this fear of punishment, when you stay in that place, you have not grasped the good news of Jesus Christ. The beauty of the gospel is this. 
a righteousness, in other words, that which is approved by God as a right standing with God, has appeared. And, and he gives it to us as a gift. He gives it to the undeserving. He gives it to those who cannot merit it. And he says, what I want to lavish on you is I want to lavish on you my love. I want to put you in a right standing so you can be right in the flow of my love and you can live in my love and you can be my son, be my daughter all the days of your life and for all eternity. He accomplished that by the cross. He accomplished that by by exhausting his anger and his punishment on Jesus in the cross so much so that the son himself said, it is finished, the debt is paid. So anything else, and, and some people have come up to me at times and say, aren't there many ways to God? Aren't there many ways to God? And I look at him and said, if you gave your only son and you let him go through becoming the curse for our sin and you put him on the cross and you had to withdraw from him so much so that this beloved son of yours, which you have declared and decreed is your beloved son in whom you're well pleased, but that beloved son, you had to distance yourself from him. You had to withdraw from him so much so that he himself said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when you've done all of that and you've provided for the people by resurrecting him from the dead, by having him ascend into heaven, by having him even now sitting on the right hand of the Father, and he's there praying for each and every one of us, and he's speaking to the Father on our behalf. And, and the Father goes, that's okay, I did all that, but you can come in another way. I doubt that. I mean, even as a, a mediocre father, if I had sacrificed my son, and you came to me and you said, can I come in another way? Now, I would not be as nice as God. But God, in His his, his grace and His mercy, keeps appealing to you. Isn't there another way? No, there's not another way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I am the door. I'm the gate. You can't come in to the fold apart from through me. I mean, it is the good news, but it also is the only news. There is no other name under heaven by which you may be saved. There is no religious pluralism. There's one God, there's one Father, and there's one Lord Jesus Christ. There's one death on a cross for all time. And in that death is the grace of God. And by faith in Him, you come into a place where you are in right alignment to receive His love and to receive his mercy. I don't know which of those three. Sometimes we, we, we can vary between the three. It might be that you're one of those people who, who said, well, I'm spiritual or I'm religious or whatever. Paul says, if you have not experienced the love of God, you gain nothing. There's some of you who say, well, I'm, I'm really not spiritually anything. I'm, I'm a nobody. And you've looked and said, I don't have any gifts and I don't have any abilities. And Paul says the greatest gift, the greatest miracle of all is for you to experience the love of God and to live in that love and to be loved by God. That's a miracle. All the other gifts flow out of that. And then the other one is that maybe you're real gifted. I mean, it's an awesome thing to live here because we have so many gifted, talented people. Maybe we are a Corinth and we're messy, but we're gifted. And so the Lord says to us, look, 
you can you can speak prophetically you can pray in tongues you can interpret you can do all those things but if you don't have love if you don't have love then it's you're nothing more than a pagan worshiper that's the bombshell does it make sense to you today i'm going to ask frank closes to listen for the anointed phrase and I think um, it came when Mike said there's a level of love for us that we haven't yet experienced, <clears throat> both receiving the Father's love and living out love. And the other thing I heard was the word about fear, <clears throat> how the Lord, when he comes, usually says, do not be afraid. And putting those two together, and I think fear often keeps us from love. If your heart is full of fear, it's impossible for you to receive the love of God, and it's impossible to, for you to live out love. So um, if we're going to reach this level of love that the Lord has for us, I think we have to address fear. So would everyone stand with me, please? Holy Spirit, come. And um, I'd like everyone just to think about the main fears in our life. It could be um, a financial debt. It could be a relationship in your life that's not going well. It could be the well-being of your children. It could be a circumstance that might come in the future. And if you would, just fold your hands like this together, and it's a book. We're going to call this the book of fear, and just... And imagine written in this book all your fears, okay? Um, now, the circumstances will still be there, but we choose fear, okay? And so, join with me now. And just imagine all your fear reactions written in this book, okay? Okay, now close the book and repeat after me. Lord, I choose not to live in fear. I close the book of my fears. Okay, now hold out your hands just like this. Lord, I choose the way of love. I choose to receive your love. I choose to live my life in love. Lord, I pray now for every single person here for whom um, this exercise was meaningful. We really do choose you, and we renounce the path of fear which has gripped us and controlled us up until this point. And so now we receive all that you have for us this day and in the coming weeks. There is a level of love that you have set before us, and now we choose into it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. We're done. Thank you. You are dismissed.